Chris, what's wrong? You seem down in the dumps. Well, Brad, I'm running these podcast numbers and the money's just not there. If things stay like this, we're going to have to close the podcast. Oh, no. Right around the holidays, too, when everything's already emotionally charged. But there has to be something we can do. Something like a big holiday spectacular variety show. Maybe get some A-list talent, invite all our old podcast buddies, televise it. I don't know. Just shooting from the hip here. All of that would take a Christmas miracle. Wait, I have an idea. What if we do a small run of holiday-themed podcast episodes? We can rip A-list talent from the movies we watch, invite podcast guests old and new, and release them on Apple Podcasts and Spotify in our usual podcast feed. Do you really think it would work? It doesn't matter, because that's what we're doing. Merry Christmas. From Los Angeles, California, it's High on Film! Tonight, we've got Adam Hinkle and White Christmas. Surely you knew everybody has a little larceny in them. Didn't you know that? On tonight's episode. Welcome to another exciting episode of High on Film, sobering talk about movies. I'm Chris Maxwell, your host. Welcome to our run of holiday films focusing on the time-honored tradition of the Christmas Carol. Not the Dickensian Christmas Carol, but songs, Christmas songs, movies that share titles with Christmas songs. And speaking of songs, I actually would like to give a very hearty thank you to Zach Pfeiffer, as always, for the theme song. And now the wonderful holiday version of our theme song that you heard today. So thank you, Zach, as always. Anyway, speaking of wonderful holiday versions of things, today we are talking the holiday classic White Christmas from 1954, directed by Michael Curtis, written by Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. Mm, Norman Panama, what a name. That's, that's a good one. Uh, one more name you should know before we go any further. He is the man right to my left, the co-host from the couch, the podcaster of disaster, and the Brad Davis that God gave us, my co-host and friend, Brad Davis. Hello, Chris. Hey, Brad. How's it going? It's going well. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Uh, you know, the irony, I guess, being that uh, because of the pandemic, we're here stuck in Southern California, and we will probably just be left dreaming of a white Christmas. Yes, we will. Yeah, we more celebrating, I guess, <laughs> Meli Kalikimaka than White Christmas, but, you know. Yeah, we'll have to go without a White Christmas this year. Yeah. Uh, is this movie uh, a nice substitute for a real White Christmas for you? Does this movie instill those warm, festive holiday feelings for you? It definitely, it, there's nostalgia to it for me. I'll at least give it that. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> check it doesn't check the box the way maybe some other Christmas classics do, but uh, I always enjoy watching it. Always enjoy watching it. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, this is maybe my third time seeing it, and it's not a favorite of mine. I really, I, you know, I went in with a real open mind this time, and I was like, I've never really liked this movie. I'm really going to try. I'm older now. Maybe I'll, I'll like it a little more, and... Uh, well, we'll get into that later <laughs> to bury the lead a little there. Let's get to our guest. Of course, we always have a guest on High on Film. 
And today, we have a very special guest, a longtime friend of both Brad and myself. He is an accomplished creator and director of the Park web series. I am so thrilled to have him here. Adam Hinkle, welcome to the show. Oh, you guys, thank you so much for having me. I, I have to say one thing, and I think one of the reasons why I'm like super jazzed to do this podcast today is because, A, it's my first one, and I fucking love you guys, and the show is just great, <laughs> but my dad uh, passed away almost five years ago, and he was like Mr. Christmas, like by all accounts, like everybody in my family like uh, you know, felt that. He, you know, we had all the Christmas decorations growing up, like Christmas lights on the outside of our house, we had like, my dad just would buck just with all of the christmas decorations inside we just have like all these houses and snow and like our, our uh, fireplace mantle and all this other stuff so i think given all that this has like a special significance for me to talk about christmas movies so i really do appreciate you guys picking like this genre to like bring me in on. i'm so grateful to do it Oh man, that's that's so touching. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And I, we are so psyched to have you. You've been on our wish list, our guest wish list, wish list for some time. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's what a holiday present to actually get you get you this year. Absolutely. Uh, have you seen this movie before? Are you familiar with White Christmas? I am familiar with White Christmas. It was one of those that I actually didn't watch in my youth at all it was one that we had like on vhs growing up like my dad taped it off of like a local fox affiliate back in like the 80s and we probably <laughs> had it on dvd maybe you know uh, a newer vhs like as i got older but it wasn't one that i actually like sat down and watched i probably saw bits and pieces of it so this is actually the first time i've seen it in its entirety Ah, oh, tip to tail all right uh and it is if you haven't seen it uh, streaming on netflix right at the time of this recording so you can check it out there or you can just hang on because Brad and I have prepared a little trailer to reintroduce you, to remind you of the joys of White Christmas. Here it is. In a world before Alaska was ever a state. Benny's got a job in Alaska. He's been out of the country for three months. A two-man vaudeville act will dominate the headlines of Variety magazine. Apparently, there's quite a bit about show business I don't understand. Bob Wallace and Phil Davis blow off their gig in New York and follow a more talented sister duo to Vermont. Hey, that's cozy, isn't it? Boy, girl, boy, girl. They'll lodge at the Columbia Inn Ski Resort, which is struggling to make ends meet in the unseasonable warmth. Is this Vermont, New England's Wonder Playground? And it just so happens to be owned by their former Army General. Let's just say we're doing it for an old pal in the army. Now, they have one chance to throw a televised Christmas special to save the inn and warm the general's heart. You're soft. You're sloppy. You're unruly. You're undisciplined. And I never saw anything look so wonderful in my whole life. And if they're not careful, they might even fall in love. I mean, you shouldn't mix fairy tales with liverwurst and buttermilk. But one thing's for sure, Bing Crosby's piercing blue eyes will make you wonder if he's a White Walker. Oh no, you wouldn't do this to me. After you dress me up like a dame. You get me involved with a sheriff, I almost lose my life trying to catch a train. I, I know, I, you wouldn't do this to old Bob, would you? Paramount Pictures presents a musical that capitalizes on the success of Holiday Inn, but otherwise has no relation to the film. Well, it's... Not good, but it's a reason. Bing Crosby, Donald Oka, uh, nope, Danny Kay, Rosemary Clooney, and the incredible Vera Ellen. The best thing 
joyous entertainment for every season, any year. Okay, then. I will I'll give it a whirl, huh? Irving Berlin's White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a Alaska became a state in 1959. Don't say we never Googled nothing for ya. Ah, there you go. A Christmas classic by all accounts. Absolutely. <laughs> no other, nothing but, else you could call it other than that. Nothing else. I mean, it's it's only Christmas at the very beginning and end of this movie. <laughs> I, I mean, the, I think it's a Christmas classic because it's called White Christmas, because the song is such a hit. Not even an original song for this movie. It's White Christmas is in two other Bing Crosby movies before this, and it actually wins uh, original song for Holiday Inn, uh, which... Yeah, so fun little fact there, but let's focus on the movie at hand and get into our first segment. And now it's time for Trash Star Destroy. That's right, it's Trash Star Destroy. We give you three movies of a similar ilk. We ask you to trash one, which means it's eliminated from existence. One movie you get to star in, in whatever role you'd like to take for yourself. And then the third movie then must be destroyed, which means that the only version of that film that has ever been made has been both written and directed by Mr. Michael Bay of Six Underground fame. All right, so this being a seminal Christmas musical, let's do three Christmas musicals. We will do Meet Me in St. Louis, featuring Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. We'll do The Muppet Christmas Carol, maybe my personal favorite of the Christmas musicals. And uh, the one, the musical that spans three holidays, A Nightmare Before Christmas. So Meet Me in St. Louis, The Muppet Christmas Carol, and A Nightmare Before Christmas, Trash, Star, Destroy. What What do you got? Um... As much as I love Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, it's one of my favorite Christmas songs, I think I'm trashing Meet Me in St. Louis um, pretty confidently. <laughs> not Nothing really against it. I just, I just know I could sit that aside and say, okay, I'm not starring in Meet Me in St. Louis. So that leaves Muppet Christmas Carol and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So, I think what I'm going to do is star in Nightmare Before Christmas. Probably as Jack Skellington. That's his name, right? Mm -hmm. um, which I think the I've, Pumpkin King. Yeah, which I think I've maybe starred in earlier this season as well. I think I maybe chose that in another. I, I think during our uh, Halloween episodes with Lizzie Donaldson, we, we uh, had Nightmare Before Christmas in there. That's right. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going to do that because I'm very curious to see Michael Bay tackle a Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, and that's, that's, that's my call. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I can't believe you're throwing Kermit to Michael Bay. I'm too interested. I mean, I could have trashed it. 
I could have started it. I could have taken Kane's. I could have taken Ebenezer Scrooge, but I think it's more important to keep Nightmare Before Christmas intact. Fair enough. Adam, what are you doing here? Dude, I am so aligned with Brad. Like, yes. that is exactly what I did, like, from top to bottom. So I had trashed Meet Me in St. Louis. I was like, that's just a relic of a bygone era. You know, and there's got some great songs in it, like some classics, mm-hmm. but just overall, it just didn't really, like, it doesn't do anything for me. And to kind of harken back to a point that you guys had made on the last podcast with Joe talking about Fight Club, we still have the play. You know, so we still have this one little, you know, like like Fight Club, we still have Chuck's book. Uh, so that was allowable. I feel like that could very well transfer here. We got the play. We have an element of the work itself. So a movie we can just it can just go. Um, I actually had a start in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas as well, although I chose Oogie Boogie. Great oh, nice. Yeah. Great I mean, choice. That, that, that song is just like his song is just one of the best parts of the movie, like just bar none so like I, who would not want to have an opportunity to play that role and <laughs> i kind of am with them on like destroying muppet christmas carol i kind of like the idea of seeing michael bay do something like a, a muppet like christmas carol seems like kind of a guilty pleasure for me i would kind of want mm. to see what that looks like oh boy all right well love it I, I'm glad I differ from you guys a little bit because i am absolutely starring in a muppet christmas carol <laughs> uh i am gonna be i think i'm gonna take the part of rizzo the rat I'm going to pal around with Gonzo as one of the, the narrators and kind of crack wise with him uh, because I think uh, Michael Caine might be the best on screen Ebenezer Scrooge. So I don't want to take him out. Can't do without Kermit, of course, as well. I thought about taking the Cratchit role, but I wouldn't do that. So yeah, I'm sorry, Rizzo. He's a great Muppet, but that part's mine. Unfortunately now, I think to save it from a worst fate, I'm trashing A Nightmare Before Christmas and giving Meet Me in St. Louis to Michael Bay, because if anything, I feel like that movie can be jazzed up a little bit. There's not a lot that happens. It's The whole plot is they might move to New York, and they don't. And that's the movie. Yes, like you said, some great songs. Trolley songs, awesome. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Great. Overall, though, let's let's get some action in there. Let's get Michael Bay to have like a thriller at the World's Fair for Meet Me in St. Louis or something like that. So that's where I'm going with this. So. I almost went that route too. Like I swear to you, I almost went that route because I thought, you know, if something could really jazz up me in St. Louis, it'd be Michael Bay. So like I, it, that was kind of a hard decision for me. Uh, but I, I almost, I kind of almost went the Chris route, but ultimately, like the Brad route was just, it was, it was too much. It was too attractive for me. Yeah, yeah. Apologies to Danny Elfman. <laughs> and also, I should mention I haven't seen it yet, but the new, uh, there is a new Christmas musical out now too on Netflix, uh, Jingle Jangle. Apparently, it's very good. The songs are great. Uh, so plug for that. If you're looking for a new Christmas musical, check that out. And maybe next time we do a Christmas musical, it'll be in Trash Star Destroy. All right, guys, one more category. We got time for this. Let's do three movies uh, that share the same director. Michael Curtis directed the movie we just watched today, White Christmas, but he also directed two other huge, huge classics. So let's Trash Star Destroy those three movies. Casablanca, White Christmas. So White House, White Christmas. And The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn, the trendsetter of the rum and coke. He's the one to popularize rum and coke, and that's what made it a big drink in America. How about that? How about that? Yep. Prolific drunkard, <laughs> Errol, Errol Flynn. I was going to say, that's very on brand for him. Uh... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Michael Curtis, Trash Star Destroy, Casablanca, White Christmas, Adventures of Robin Hood. What are you going to do with that, Brad? 
I have to star in Casablanca. That's a no-brainer for me. And mm-hmm. I would take the role of Louis. Just uh, pal around with Bogart, be his buddy, get that great line at the end of the multiple great lines in this movie. Um, so, yeah, I got to star in Casablanca. It's a classic. Uh, it's White Christmas. What was the other one? The Adventures of Robin Hood. Adventures of Robin Hood. I think I'm trashing White Christmas and giving Adventures of Robin Hood to Bay just because that plays into his hands better. And I don't think necessarily you lose, like, I don't think I'm, you know, by trashing White Christmas, I'm saving it or anything or vice versa. I think it's just uh, more of an action movie is better for Bay. So. That's what I'm just going to end up looking like that Edgerton, Jamie Foxx, Robin Hood. Oh, God, I forgot about that movie. Everyone (laughs) did. Everyone did. (laughs) Adam, what are you doing with this uh, conundrum? So I was with Brad on the starring. I would probably star in Casablanca, but I chose Bogart because it's like it's just one of the greatest fucking performances. And who would not want to be part of like a, you know, one of the leads in a classic movie like that. So I would probably have to go with Bogart. Partially also because it gives me a reason to say I want to be Bogart and Boogie because of Oogie Boogie. So it's stupid. I would, although I did differ on what I would trash and destroy. So I decided to trash Adventures in Robin Hood just because I thought that it would be already kind of redundant. Like it seems like that would be something that would probably already play into what his strengths are. And so I thought like I could already kind of see that happening. So I chose not to go down that route for that reason and have him destroy right by Christmas. Because I thought that, you know, because it just seems a little bit out of his ilk and I would kind of want to see the train wreck that that would be. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, uh, but uh, so that would be my, that would, those would be my three. I'd trash Robin Hood, star in Casablanca as Bogart, and then destroy White Christmas. Yeah, I, I think I'm kind of in line with you there, Adam. I mean, how do you not star in Casablanca? Uh, I'm actually going to take, I'm, I'm not going to take Bogart. I'm actually going to take his romantic rival. I'm going to be Victor Laszlo. And uh, I'm going to run off with uh, Ingrid Bergman at the end of the movie. Good for you. So that's what I'm going to do. Actually, it'll be nice. Then all three of us can be in the movie together. It'll be fun. That'd be great. Yeah. (laughs) Should I do that tomorrow with you two? (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And then, yeah, we have that Edgerton Robin Hood. I don't want to see Michael Bay do another version of Robin Hood. I think The Adventures of Robin Hood is a fantastic film. I mean, there's a reason it's been done over and over and over again uh whether it's the disney animated version or men in tights or the kevin costner version we have so many versions of that story already that i think i'm going to trash it and yeah maybe for the same reason i gave michael bay meet me in st louis i'm going to give him white christmas it's just too much to too much to pass up to see maybe like you know get the pain and gain cast together and do the rock and mark Wahlberg in white christmas it's in florida you know they start in florida and then they go up to vermont and i i think it would uh that would just certainly be a christmas classic i'd watch every year so that's what i'm gonna do destroy michael bay's white christmas i appreciate the choices and the justifications too i think you guys are like i'm totally with you both white christmas by michael bay is tempting (laughs) i would would have to at least give it one watch like it's it's just fucking ridiculous. And that's Trash Star Destroy for another week. Congratulations, gentlemen. We made it through. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more High on Film, more Adam Hinkle, and more White Christmas after this. 
Can't get enough of the song White Christmas, Irving Berlin, or Bing Crosby? Then try and track down Blue Skies, because you can't stream it anywhere. Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire vie for the heart of Joan Caulfield by both using their most recognized bits, White Christmas and Putin on the Ritz. It was Fred Astaire's final film until he pulled a Michael Jordan and came out of retirement two years later. It's the nearest thing to heaven, Irving Berlin's Blue Skies. And we're back, high on film, right in the middle of White Christmas, and we are about to dig into it. It's time for scene work. Here, we're going to take the best, the worst, the top three, the bottom three scenes, and discuss a little open forum discussion. You know, what podcasts usually are. We're an optimistic podcast at that, so let's start things off optimistically with... Best scene. What's the best scene in White Christmas? Uh, we'll do, as I said, rankings. Uh, start with number three, move to number two, and then your best scene last. Uh, Brad, you want to start us off here? For sure. Um, so my third best scene is kind of a twofer, but it's the sisters song that uh, Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen perform together, but then kind of going into when they escape, Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye then doing the same performance uh, of the song is mm-hmm. when I saw this movie the first time that struck me as very funny. I mean, it, I was a little younger and so on and so forth, but that always um, is a kind of one of my more favorite parts of the movie it holds up. Okay. But it's, it's a fun little romp of watching those two do the same performance. Yeah, maybe the best comedy bit of the movie. For sure. Yeah. Um, So that's my number three. Uh, Number two is at the beginning, which the scene overall is whatever uh, when they're still in the army. But Bing Crosby singing White Christmas as all the soldiers are like kind of taking it in, knowing they're going to battle tomorrow. Um, It hit an emotional chord for me on this viewing. Um, It's... it's, Bing Crosby singing the song beautifully and I I think it's maybe acapella or very little music in the background if any um, just hit an emotional chord for me that that really worked Um, and then my number one scene I mean I'm going to point out um, the instead of dance it's choreography performance uh, just because it's it's kind of a fun little bit that they do but overall it's uh, Vera Ellen's dancing which she does throughout the movie where she is a phenomenal dancer and so impressive and just so much better than everybody else in this movie at dancing. Um, And that's kind of all, anytime I watch this movie, I'm always like, I know that I'm just going to watch that woman dance her ass off and be incredible at it. So I think I pick out that one because I think it's just the most fun musical performance that she dances in. But overall her dancing throughout this movie is always the standout element to me. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's crazy, Brad. I think this is the second week in a row where we have almost the exact same three. I, we don't have the exact same three this time, Okay, but definitely two of them uh, to make it flow a little better for me. I'll, I'll start with my number one. I, that opening, the white Christmas with Bing Crosby in war torn Europe is great. I actually will even go to the very beginning of the movie. It's such a clever opening to start on that painted backdrop of a picturesque, snowfall in Christmas town and then pull out to reveal war torn Europe. 
uh, because it's an old Hollywood movie and you think that's going to be the backdrop when you're expecting characters to walk in front of it, but they don't. The camera pulls out and then you get, you don't even have to wait a minute for a, the most beautiful version of White Christmas in this movie, I think, is Bing Crosby alone as opposed to uh, the the end number when they all sing it together. That being said, my number two is absolutely Vera Ellen's dancing. I actually uh, picked out her moves in Mandy uh, when she dances with the guy in the lime green suit. I believe they make, they call him John at one point. He's the, the only guy who can keep up with her dance-wise, so she dances with him the entire film. Uh, but it's, she's incredible, man. The The move she's putting on in that song and throughout this entire movie is is unbelievable and i agree with you i think it is almost an unmatched artistry in this film uh but number three for me then would be the end and the end reveal when they pull up the backdrop into the fly space and the doors open and it's actually a white christmas and the kids are there like looking like angels or you know what ballerinas and they're all in their red and white christmas outfits uh, it's just really, it is, it's that kind of like Christmas magic you look for in a holiday movie. And I love that, how it uh, plays with the opening. You know, you get that fake uh, backdrop in, in the beginning and in White Christmas. And then now you have White Christmas, a full orchestrated version. And you remove the fake backdrop to actually reveal a snowy, beautiful, picturesque Christmas town of Vermont. Uh, and it's uh, really, really clever, really nice. But yeah, that, that's it for me. So Good job, Brad. Way to like the same thing hey. <laughs> as me in the movie. We should discuss these things beforehand moving forward. <laughs> we should. Adam, do you have any different scenes to mention for White Christmas for your best scenes? Maybe one. I was I was with you guys on a couple of them. There was, I think, my third. I'll go uh, third, second, and first. So I'd say the third best scene for me um, was actually the intro uh, when you actually have uh, – Bing Crosby singing White Christmas, that actually kind of got to me too, because then you do the reaction shots of all like the young soldiers. And it's just, it actually is a little, like, it is a little heartwarming because, well, because eh, like you have these like young guys, like these young soldiers who are abroad and they like, they hear that song and you just like, just see like the disappointment or the, the, the longing on their faces. And it's just like, oh man. Like yeah, that, a lot of them are praying in that scene too. It's like using it as a prayer. It's it's really nice. It's really touching. You're yeah, right. Yeah, it's a really tender moment. You know, which you know, I would, would imagine that you know because you have these guys in battle and then they have a you know this this very, you know, this just this kind of very quiet sort of somber little moment where it just kind of like sets in. And I thought that was really beautifully handled. Um, that would be my third best. My second uh, would probably be the the end when uh, General Waverly is there, and you kind of can you know he starts like you know getting a little bit like glassy eyed, seeing like that huge performance with his entire division there. Like that, I thought was kind of in, for an equally good reason. I thought that was a you know nice little tender moment, kind of the culmination of all of this work that Wallace and Davis you know had done throughout the entirety of the movie so i thought that was a really cool moment and my first uh best moment which is not like the most exciting but i kind of like the way they handled it was the um the the scene in the dressing room between wallace and davis at the beginning where they're going through their exposition uh which i feel like is just so fucking hard to pull off but what i appreciate about what they did was it felt very like the the way that that scene played out seems very much like you know uh, 
you know, it, very, very indicative of the time where it's like this, this rapid fire dialogue when they're just kind of like exchanging these witty barbs back and forth. And you actually see like a lot of like the chemistry between those two. And like, I think I probably like the scene for that reason, because it feels very much like of that era. And, you know, just as storytellers, you know, how hard exposition can be to just like, you know, to get through. And I think they did a really good job of like kind of, you know, plowing through it and, you know, just having a lot of fun while they did it. And just like even the physicality, like seeing like, you know, Bing Crosby tosses like his, uh, uh, his, uh, I think he was wearing like a bow tie or a necktie, just kind of like tossing that to Danny Kaye and how he just kind of catches it effortlessly when they're just kind of like doing their things. And you can kind of see how they both are very much like they have a rhythm with each other. And you can kind of see why they are such a great duo and like why they work. So I, that would probably be like my favorite scene. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. Watching them kind of go through their dressing room uh, routines together is fun. Like, yeah, I think uh, Bing Crosby tosses Danny Kaye his hat. Danny Kaye tosses Bing Crosby his cane at the same time. And they both put them away. And then they're, when they're putting on jackets, like their their street clothes, I guess, is it called street clothes back then? They're full suits. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when they're getting dressed, they, uh, and the messenger, whoever comes in with the train tickets, and Danny Kay just puts his arm behind him, still like fully dressing himself, just accepts the tickets in his hand behind his back, jams them into his pocket. It's it's a really slick vaudevillian move that is. You're right; it shows their their comfort with each other and gets out that like, hey, these guys have been. I mean, well, we just saw the montage of them coming up through the ages, but. Uh, yeah, that they're old hats at this. They're they're so rehearsed that even when they're kind of arguing over women and free time, they're still so in sync with one another. And it's yeah, it's a really nice relationship uh, builder in that scene. Yeah, so I think it was definitely like kind of a again not in the same way we mean St. Louis, but it's sort of like it is kind of a relic of a bygone era where you don't really you know obviously we don't have that kind of storytelling, that kind of you know certain aspects of the rapport. Like it just felt very much like you know stuff that you would see in you know 30s 40s 50s and i just kind of i thought it was just like uh, probably one of the better scenes that they had in the movie together that's their big that's like really the the main scene where it's the two of them too because so much of the movie involves rosemary clooney and vera ellen and kind of their whole trying to match get those two together so i think i really and at the beginning they don't really know each other so i do think you really I think you make a good point. You really solidify their entire relationship in that scene. And it's such a important factor for the rest of the movie. Cause you just kind of know at this point, like they're best buds, like whether they drive each other crazy, they're best buds. And they keep ref, you know, the 45 minutes, they keep referencing that scene throughout. So yeah, it does yeah. a really good job of kind of giving you all that exposition of their relationship in a fun way. Yeah, and to your point, like they actually do have a lot that they set up in that scene that that carries over in like subsequent scenes. I think the forty-five minutes, you're absolutely right. The joke about like, oh, we're doing this, you know, this little thing for a reason, it's not a good reason. Like, there's so many like, shout-outs to like stuff that they actually like introduce in that scene that like sets up, you know, a lot of like, you know, a lot of like their their in jokes for the rest of the, uh, for you know, at least a good portion of the movie. So yeah, like it's it's kind of solid on a number of levels to me. Yeah, I think they even pull off the rule of threes with that. Uh, well, it's not a reason. Well, at least it's a reason, or whatever the line is exactly. That because the third one they actually say it together to convince themselves to do something. Yeah, it's really really fun. Yeah, do it for an old army buddy, or yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. If there's a best scene, that means that there's a worst scene. What are the bottom three scenes or elements of White Christmas? Uh, for me. 
I think my third worst scene, it's a, it's a quick scene between Bing Crosby and the general uh, when Bing Crosby like drives up on his truck at one point and he, Bing Crosby hops out and the general says, Hey, you look like you're ready to go right back into the army. And just cause he's driving in the truck and Bing Crosby is wearing, first of all, a kerchief around his neck, a, a full suit with like black shiny shoes. Like he looks totally the opposite of being ready to go to war or being like back in the army at all. It's like a gray suit jacket, blue slacks and black shoes. Yeah. Like, it's a tipped hat. It's like a colorful kerchief, like the shiniest black shoes you can imagine. It is very funny. <laughs> and also in that scene, there's a point where the general says he's like got this letter and tells Bing Crosby to read it to me, son. And I looked up, they are both the exact same age in this movie. Uh, they are born at the same time. So that struck me as funny. Um, my second worst scene is the, um, is the song performance, uh, the, if you can't sleep, count your blessings instead of sheep. <laughs> it's just, the song is kind of corny. It's kind of boring. The performance of it is just Bing Crosby sitting across from Rosemary Clooney. It comes off very, uh, stuck like it just it doesn't do anything for me and like it i don't know i i just find it very i found it very boring performance um and then number one worst is all is also a song it's the snow song um the lyric on the train on the train i mean the four of them together are charming and they perform well so it's like fun to watch them but the lyrics in that song are ridiculous i I just found myself laughing at them. I, I, what did she say? I'll, cl I'll wash my hair with snow. Yeah, I believe Betty Rosemary Clooney's character <laughs> says, "I'll wash my hair with snow" because they love snow so much. It's, it's a hilarious song that is just yeah, dumb a, a time filler. It's like, hey, we're doing a Christmas musical. Put something in there about snow, like. Well, and it makes sense because they show. Then they show up in Vermont, and there is no snow, so they're trying to set up this like expectation oh, right. of it that then is a disappointment. But overall, with this movie, like I like the music well enough, but a lot of the lyrics in the songs that they create are lacking, and that's kind of my overall issue with this movie. Like, I still like it. I still find it very fun, but the new songs they create for the movie just are lacking in lyrically for me. Yeah. Uh, Adam, how do you feel about this? We're scenes. Oh man. It was actually harder for me to nail down the, uh, the, the good stuff. Uh, the, the bad stuff. I just felt like there was just, there, there were, there were so many different examples that I had a hard time narrowing <laughs> down. It's true. Just, but you got to look at like the movie was made in 54. So it's just like you're talking about 60 some odd years ago and it's just like just so many things that are just so cringeworthy that I really like that I especially on my first viewing it was just like I, I just it, it was so hard to avoid. I would probably have to say the third worst uh, this is probably more aspects of the movie as opposed yeah, to yeah. scenes yeah. but I'd say the third worst aspect about the movie to me would be like I think General Waverly is a bit of a perv. 
<laughs> he winks at every character in this movie. Yeah, it's like you just look at it, like you can tell he's probably hard up a little bit, and there's probably not you know all, he's not getting a whole lot of action because it's like he gets very fixated on on the um, on the sisters, especially when he like first meets him. It's like you know we're gonna save off introductions for you know and wait until I you know meet these two ladies first, and then he's like walking in on like on Wallace and Betty, you know, while they're kissing. He's like, oh, I'll just look out for something to help my sweet tooth. Yeah, <laughs> and then he like he's just there after Davis and uh, and Judy announce their engagement. He's like walking up to them. He's like, "Oh, don't just stand there. Aren't you gonna kiss the bride?" And like kind of yeah. put them right on the spot. And it's like, God damn, dude. So that was a little like you know a little you know unsettling. Um, His whole character is hilarious to me because one of the first things he says when they get to Vermont, he's like, tells Bing Crosby, he's like, don't call me general. I don't want to hear that. But then the rest of the time that they're there, he uses so much military jargon in talking to everybody. I'm like, if you don't want to be called general, stop making everything like the army. Like he even says like, I'll court-martial you for this. And like, he has the old retired army Jeep to drive around in on their farm. Like, it's so funny for someone who's like, whoa, 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 don't call me general. I left that army past behind me. Yeah. It's a lot and of... clearly is fully entrenched in it still. Yeah. It's very inconsistent in his, uh, <laughs> you know, in his demand. Uh, I would probably have to say the, the second was probably like a bit of a tie for me between two things. So I would say, um, I, I'd say, uh, and it, they both involve Bing Crosby. So the second worst would probably be the romantic relationship between uh, Wallace and Betty. Because I think where they do well, in my opinion, is their combativeness. I think that's actually part of the relationship that I really liked. And I think that there were moments in the romantic relationship as I was burgeoning that it was like, you know, that, that it was, you know, entertaining. But I just felt like just no chemistry, like, you know, in certain moments between those two. And I don't know if it's just because of like, I mean, there was like, what, a 25 year age difference between the two? Like, I think Bing Crosby yeah. was born in, like, 1903, and I'm pretty sure Rosemary Clooney was born in, like, maybe, like, 1928 or uh, somewhere around that era. So it was just, like, it just didn't... So nothing's changed in Hollywood. Right. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Yeah. So I probably, I wonder if that, like, maybe played into it a bit, but I just wasn't really buying a lot of, like, the romantic stuff that went along with them. I totally bought their combativeness. That was just, like, I thought that was great. Like, I love that first time when they're sitting at the table and they're both just kind of going back and forth with each other. Um, you know, like, I, I thought that was actually, like, you know, kind of in the same way I liked the uh, the dressing room scene between uh, Wallace and Davis. I kind of like it similar, that similar quality when uh, Wallace and Betty are, you know, meeting for the first time and having a conversation. Yeah, and I think, I also think that's why my second one, the If You Can't Sleep, Count Your Blessings, I, I think that song also feels the lack of, chem like, there's just no chemistry there. I, I agree with you on that. And I think you're right. The combativeness is when they are at their best. Yeah. And especially comparing, you know, Count Your Blessings to uh, The Best Things Happen When You Dance, which is the the falling in love moment for Danny Kaye and Vera, Vera Ellis, Vera Ellen. Uh, and it's so, I mean, it is, it's a snappier number. It, it I, You believe their chemistry so much more than you believe the chemistry between uh, Crosby and Clooney. Yeah, without question. And I also think that is probably one of the better dance numbers, in my opinion, because I feel like it actually, it, 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 it kind of like pushes the plot a little bit more than some of the other dance numbers, which you, you know, they're just kind of like put in as, you know, just for the sake of a dance number, which is great, because Vera is, like you said, Brad, like an amazing dancer, and it's nice seeing her, uh, seeing her work her magic. But 
Um, so I think that's probably a better example of like dance actually like enhancing that moment because they're talking about like the electricity that happens between like a man and woman when you go and you know you're in the, the midst of a dance and all of these things that happen to you so that I can kind of buy um, but yeah so I would say the relationship between Wallace and Betty like the romantic stuff is just like Argh. but tied with that is Bing Crosby's like expression of anger when he talks about like when he discovers that uh, Davis had given up their uh, their little suite on the train and he's like you know if I find those two blondes in there I'm gonna take them by the hair and then they have their like entrance and like interrupt it and I was just sort of like it's you know just very I, I like how you guys are cool about you know casual violence against women you know it's like yeah, yeah what an abuser Bing Crosby yeah well I, exactly yeah. that's the thing too yeah. like knowing what we know now about Bing Crosby and just like what it just how abusive he was to like his own kids it's kind of like ah, it kind of it seems to ring true a little bit but I think just looking at that on its face just it's it's just a little cringeworthy for me you know what i mean just it's a little a little much but i think i'm looking at that through like the lens of you know somebody who's looking at this through a 2020 lens as opposed to you know of course you yeah look, yeah look at things in context but i would say it's probably the the first like the worst in my opinion is probably the minstrel number that they do yeah, because it's just like uh, i mean i think that they it made it just a bit less awkward by not actually going the full blackface route. They with really it. skirt the racial issue. <laughs> they really do. And so I, I at least it's, it's at least like in a way, like somewhat watchable in my opinion. But again, it's just like the fact that there's a mystery number. And I think that like <laughs> granddaughter's comment right after that is that like, it, this will bring in business grandpa. It's just like oh, yeah. just that little racist little button that you have <laughs> right at the end of that. So even though they're not like in blackface, the fact that they're like talking about how much they enjoy the minstrel numbers, it just like does not age well in my opinion. Yeah. And it also yeah. doesn't do anything to like serve the plot there. It's just like, it seems like it could be one of those extraneous like dance numbers in a way. It's well done. It's a really well done dance number. And I think if it didn't have the stain of the minstrel show thing on it, it would probably have been um, it, it probably looking it through the lens again of a, you know, watching it through you know in 2020 it might be probably a little bit more palatable in my opinion but yeah it's just like i don't know it's just a a, a stain that's just sort of like they should probably forget about yeah uh, that's my number one too is is the, the minstrel show because they even do have some of the imagery like the backdrop is these big minstrel hands like yeah. plucking at a banjo and you're just like and i understand like at you know not even not when this movie's made. I think minstrel shows are kind of out by the '54. But when it was yeah. set in '44, I mean, minstrel shows were huge. So yeah. they were huge crowd drawers. I mean, despite them being always steeped in terrible, terrible racism. Uh, it, yeah, I understand. Like, hey, yeah, it'll bring in you know a, a popular. It's a popular art form, and it's going to bring in butts in seats. But it's just yeah, it doesn't hold up well for for 2020 there. Uh, and I will say, while it skirts the racial issue, fully leans in on animal abuse when they talk about shooting the dog and pulling his teeth out to keeping it from biting you. Yeah. It's like, all right, yeah, we could probably get rid of this. Yeah, it's just it's so many things about that number that are just like it's just so problematic, you know, just in in how like how horribly certain aspects of that movie have aged. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number two for me is is the snow song. Specifically, I'll wash my hair with snow. That <laughs> line is so ridiculous. You could you could have written 
any other five words there, it would be better. But just to wash your hair with snow is not only impractical, but that's got to be freezing cold. I mean, that's not going to do the job. I don't like it. I think that's so dumb. And it makes me laugh because they repeat it like three times, that line in the song. They just needed it to rhyme. They're like, we need something to rhyme. So wash, <laughs> yeah. wash your hair with snow. Sure, that works. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, number three for me is actually Danny Kaye's pickup line of Judy, where um, so it's just after he starts flirting with her and she's uh, says, oh, we're going to Vermont. Vermont is beautiful this time of year. All that snow. And then Danny Kay just repeats that same line back at her and says, so Vermont, all that snow. And she's like, that's what I just said. And he goes, oh, seems we're getting all, both a little mixed up here. And then just like whisks her outside. And I'm like, how is this at all a pickup line that's supposed to make you think that he's charming her by just repeating her words back to her? I, uh, yeah, I, I just don't see how that <laughs> at all works in picking up a woman. But hey, what are you going to do? I do think we kind of uh, talked about this a little bit, but what keeps me from really loving this is I think most of the songs are pretty middling numbers. I mean, you get White Christmas, which is a banger, uh, an all-time classic, a legitimately terrific Chris Christmas song. After that, though, I mean, Three Sisters is good. Um, best Things to Happen When You're Dancing is good. Uh, the Rosemary Clooney, You Done Me Wrong is pretty good. Yeah. But then everything, I think then you get a huge drop off to like the, the, the what is it, Snow, Count Your Blessings. I, I don't think the choreography song is particularly interesting or snappy outside of the actual dancing that accompanies it. Right. Uh, Gee, I Wish I Was Back in the Army is a jaunty little piece of propaganda that I don't really care for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. What do you do with a general? That song is ridiculous and also problematic in his tv appearance because he's trying to get off tv really quickly i don't know <laughs> i'm with you i think one of the notes that i had actually written out uh during like one of my viewings of it i was like too many fucking dance numbers shave off that shit <laughs> like there were so many that didn't like really have anything to do with the plot didn't really push anything along it was just kind of like an excuse to just have a dance number and i'm not saying that all of them were like that but there were like a decent amount where i'm like okay this is just like we're just kind of going back to the same shit just to show that they're rehearsing these numbers for this you know this bonanza that they're going to be having for you know the general and i just didn't feel like they really did anything it does not to say there were some that were really good and added a lot you know of really good moments but i just feel like there was just too much of it it's a two-hour movie that definitely does not need to be a two-hour movie you could have shaved off a couple of the numbers and trimmed this thing down to an hour and a half and it would have played a lot better Agreed. Yeah, I mean, they repeat two of the songs. Two of the songs are played <laughs> twice. Now, those are the two best songs. White Christmas and Sisters are both played in their entirety twice. Uh, but yeah, I, it doesn't need to be a two-hour movie. All right, guys, that's, that's scene work. So now let's get into America's favorite podcast game. <laughs> it's time for milking it. Here we go. We're going to roll out the big computer of Hollywood Ideas 2000 here in just a moment, and it is going to supply us with a bit of inspiration. We'll get a, a time limit, a, a pitch card, if you will, that will determine how much time we will each get to get out a title and a quick summary of a brand new movie 
which is the other piece of information will be supplied uh, by the computer. Uh, a genre, a director, an actor, some piece to reimagine White Christmas, its plot points, its songs, its characters, whatever you'd like to take from it, uh, and make a brand new movie to put back out there and make a billion dollars for the studio system. So let's get the old computer out here and fire her up. Love these printouts. They're still warm when they come out of the computer. It's nice, you know? Toasty. Okay, we are starting with me today. I have the elevator pitch. That'll give me 30 seconds to get out the title and quick summary of White Christmas reimagined as a dark comedy. Okay, I can I can insert some, some twisted humor into this. I hope. We'll see. Brad, you're going next. One American Minute for the water cooler pitch to do... Oh, okay. Mel Brooks's White Christmas. Ah, okay. All right. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, you get to do like a send-up of, of Christmas movies, you know? Mel Brooks, you know, did uh, the best version of Adventures of Robin Hood, another Michael Curtis film. Here's your chance to, to do it for White Christmas. Can't wait. And Adam, you will be closing it down for us with the boardroom pitch. A minute and 30 seconds. Oh, another director card to do Alfred... Hitchcock's White Christmas. Oh. You up for the challenge? Oh, man. I'm ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a minute to gather our thoughts, and we'll be back with three brand new movies right after this. And we're back right in the middle of milking it for White Christmas. All right. I'm up first this week. The elevator pitch. Uh, a mere 30 seconds to get out White Christmas as a dark comedy to the studio executives. So here we go. Okay, we, we love White Christmas, but we want it to be a, a more broader comedy. We're going dark comedy with this, okay? The sisters, Judy and Betty, if you remember, uh, they're in trouble with their landlord for burning a carpet. They have to skip town. Well, we're conflating the general, General Waverly, with this landlord. He owns the resort. Uh, Bob and Phil try to help them out. They, in this process, accidentally kill the general and ahead of this huge Christmas celebration and now must parade his dead body around the resort for the weekend, uh, a la Weekend at Bernie's Inn, the last Christmas at the Columbia Inn. Okay. Yeah, that's a dark comedy for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's tough to beat. There's have to pretend propping his body up, make sure, you know, make it look like he's having a good old time for the whole, as everyone floods in to this holiday resort. I'd watch it. I would too. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, Brad. Yep. One American minute for the water cooler. Pitch. Okay. You've, you've cornered the executive at the water cooler. You're grabbing your little Dixie cup. Yep. For sure. Here it comes. Mel Brooks's White Christmas. Here you go. Okay. So for this, we're going to have to bring some people back from the dead. So uh, Madeline Kahn and Cloris Leachman are playing Wallace and Davis and they're traveling the country uh, as performers and they run into uh, another 
duo uh, played by Gene Wilder and Harvey Korman. And they're all going to perform in California. So they have nice weather for the holidays. And of course, it turns out the one in a million shot, they get to California and it's snowing. So they are forced to stay at an inn their former general owns, played by Mel Brooks. And they're putting together a show to save the inn. And that's when it's revealed that they aren't actually good at singing or dancing. So they have to try to make this work. Then they also have uh, Cleavon Little who comes in, who wants, they need Santa. He wants to play Santa. Of course, Mel Brooks is like, can uh, you are a black guy? You maybe shouldn't play Santa. And we also have him comment on the minstrel show and how wrong that is. And um, you see Mel Brooks look like, of course, an idiot because he is an idiot. And uh, that's basically it in Mel Brooks's White People Christmas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just uh, really heavily drawing on the Blazing Saddles theme. That's, for that's that. what it was, yes. I yeah. was try- I started going more Young Frankenstein direction, but it just I kept going more towards Blazing Saddles. So that's what I leaned into. Hey, that's all right. You have an an outstanding cast, there. right? That's like the greatest uh, yeah. cast ever. <laughs> that that four the, the the four leads there: Cloris Leachman, Madeline Kahn, uh, Gene Wilder, and um, Harvey Corman. Are yeah, are that's awesome. I would love to see those four do any version of White Christmas they want to do. Oh, likewise, solid cast, brother. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Adam, you ready for Alfred Hitchcock's White Christmas? You got the, the boardroom pitch. You ready for this? You got it, man. Away you go. We start in the bedroom between Wallace and Davis. They have just engaged in the act of lovemaking, and Davis wants to have the relationship go public and stop meeting in these seedy hotel rooms when he comes to town. So the next night in the middle of his solo performance, he gets a thought. He'll drive and visit Wallace for Christmas so they can spend some good quality time together. So on the train ride to New York, he stops at the Columbia Inn in Pine Tree, and the general is running the front desk. Emma has the night off. So he engages <laughs> Davis and asks, and gets him a, a liverwurst sandwich from the fridge and asks him what he's doing. And Davis says he's on the way to see a friend in New York and asks him who else is staying there. And the general says, well, the only person here is, you know, my mom, because, you know, a general's best friend is his mother. And... <laughs> When Davis asks him why he doesn't put her in a home, he goes, like, an institution? A madhouse? And then Davis gets a little uncomfortable and decides to go to bed, but he wants to have a shower first. So then a silhouette comes in and murders him while he is in the shower. And then the following day, Judy comes and makes the trip to the Columbia Inn because she heard that was the last place that Davis was, and she's followed closely behind by Wallace and by Betty. And the general says that Davis left and he didn't really do anything else. So Davis, uh, they, they go around, they see if they could find, you know, any info, any, any lead under where Davis is. And they find Davis's bow tie around the toilet. So they knew that he was there. And then yada, 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 they discovered that the general had uh, PTSD from the war. And he murdered Davis in a fit of rage for commenting on his, his old mother. And so they confront him in the bowels of the basement of the Columbia Inn. And he is dressed, uh, general's dressed in a wig and a frock. And he pulls out this rifle with a bayonet on the end and tries to kill all of them but they subdue him and the psychologist gives us all the psychological mumbo jumbo that we that led him to kill davis and afterwards we are brought into the room where we are given a glimpse into the mind of the general and he speaks in the tone of his mother and as he's giving this terrifying soliloquy we see the whiteness of the new fallen snow coming through the window on the outside <laughs> juxtaposed against this horrifying crass speech 
<laughs> I like it. Do you, do you have a title for us? Alfred Hitchcock's White Christmas. Alfred Hitchcock's White Christmas. Excellent. <laughs> Love it. He's right. got to have his name above the title. You know, of course. John Carpenter, yeah. Halloween. It's just, it, it's perfect. Like I said, he's a man of accomplishment. He's a man of honor. I think he deserves that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you had the, the studio execs wrapped in attention for that. That was that was excellent. Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I wasn't quite sure, but I was like, man, Hitchcock, oh, the only thing that I've really seen a million times is Psycho. So I just think, you know, White Christmas in the vein of Psycho could really play with some interesting themes there. Because that also had a lot of weird psychological stuff to it, too, that was really taboo at the time. So I could totally see him kind of going that route and injecting a lot of, like, really uncomfortable shit into white Christmas. oh absolutely yeah all hitchcock films are wrapped with the taboo i mean like the you even get like the homosexuality plot lines of like strangers on a train and rope like in there uh, uh yeah, yeah. there's plenty, plenty of good stuff yeah i like it i like it a lot yeah, great, job. great job guys we just sold three brand new movies uh so congratulations great great deals in hollywood today thank you <laughs> well we're about at the end of the show there's only one more thing to do and that's Brad Davis. You just watched White Christmas. What are you going to do next? For some reason, I when I watch White Christmas, it just makes me want to watch Singing in the Rain. And I haven't watched Singing in the Rain in a while. So I think I'm going to watch Singing in the Rain. Danny Kaye. That's that's what it is, right? Is he, I don't think he's in. Is Danny Kaye in that? I think it's a different guy who I always confuse with Danny Kaye. Uh, oh, really? I think is it uh, uh, Gene Kelly? Well, it's Gene Kelly. And the other guy's name is... Oh, Donald O'Connor. Donald O'Connor. That's who does make him laugh. Yeah. I always confuse the two. I never remember which one's in White Christmas and which one's singing in the rain until I look it up. And that's also yeah. probably why it triggers for me. So yeah. clearly something that never happens to me. I never confuse them. No, not at all. <laughs> Adam Hinkle, you just watched White Christmas. What are you going to do next? Ah, oh, man, I'm probably going to watch some stuff that's a little bit more Christmassy. So one thing about White Christmas that I was a little disappointed by is how of a lack of Christmas there is in this movie. It's bookended by Christmas, but everything in the middle doesn't really have anything to do with Christmas. I know, except for that one song about snow. Yeah, that, that, and yeah, we all know how much we we, we love that piece. So <laughs> I'm probably going to have to, you know, I, I'm probably going to have to get a little bit more of my, my saccharine Christmas little fix. What's your go-to Christmas movie? Man, I got a few. I, Home Alone, obviously. Yes, is, is sure. There. But in recent years, I've actually kind of been going to the Tim Burton Batman movies. Like, Oh, Batman, yeah. Batman we got when I was a kid. Brian had got it when we were six years old on VHS. And Allie uh, used to watch uh, Batman Returns with her brothers as like a Christmas movie when they were kids. So we kind of like, we kind of add those into the mix during the Christmas holiday. Funny enough. I know. I love that. I, Batman Returns is absolutely set at Christmas. Yeah. I don't remember if the original Batman takes place at Christmas. I don't. I don't. But I don't Returns definitely it. does. Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't say definitively. I don't know if it might have like a Christmas moment to it, but I think. I watched it recently and it does have something. It's like around that time because I think like the there's decorations up for the holidays around Gotham or something. I don't think it's like yeah. very specific, but there is something. It's around the holidays. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but because I got it during Christmas, or Brian got it as a gift during Christmas, I associate it with Christmas. So those are yeah. those are like probably my three go tos. Hmm. Batman Returns also has my favorite Christopher Walken line ever. Uh, towards the end, where he's like, "Bruce Wayne, what are you doing dressed up as Batman?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> Michelle, I was just like, "He is Batman, you idiot!" I, I just love that line so much. Yeah, <laughs> it cracks me up. It's great, man. So yeah, that's probably going to be what I need to get a little bit of like the white Christmas taste out of my mouth. There you go. 
Chris, you just watched White Christmas. What are you going to do next? Uh, honestly, I'm I buried the lead earlier. I'm going to watch Jingle Jangle. Uh, I really want to see it. It's a new movie. I've you know just been thirsting for new movies this year. So anytime something pops up on a streaming service, I'm devouring it fairly quickly. Uh, and I also I think I might try to watch Holiday Inn. I, I never saw that. Uh, you know, it seems to be almost a replica of this film. It's about Two guys getting stuck at an inn during Christmas and having to put on a show starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Uh, and it has White Christmas, the song, in it. But yeah, I want to check it out. See, see what it's like. A lot of people apparently thought White Christmas was a remake or a sequel when it came out. But it is apparently not associated. All right. Good choice. Thanks. Other than that, uh, I got to just tell everybody to go check out... Uh, our episodes on Social Network and Citizen Kane, and we even did a mini episode for a, a review of Mank out now on Netflix, if you wrote like me, craving new movies in the year of our Lord 2020. And of course, our Brad and Mine's uh, film noir radio play, Death at Sunset. All four episodes of season two out now for your listening enjoyment. Please check those out and rate and review them on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and I'll also add, uh, check out The Park, a web series. Uh, Adam, where can people find that and watch that? Yeah, it's a really wonderful job you did creating, directing, editing. I mean, you, you did so much work for it, and it really paid off. It's a really, really great piece. I really appreciate that, man. It was definitely a, a labor of love, and uh, sometimes it was more labor than love, but I, <laughs> I really do appreciate that. I'm super lucky. Anybody, if you're looking for light Christmas fare, just kidding, not <laughs> <laughs> You can find it at www.theparkwebseries.com. It is about a group of Chicago street uh, outreach workers who are attempting to prevent gun and gang violence in uh, in uh, several neighborhoods. So I hope that uh, that if anybody's looking for, uh, uh, you know, just say uh, again, you know, light fair, you know, you'll you'll know where to go. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, man, for for giving me the opportunity to plug it. I really do appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, buddy. And thank you so much for doing the show today. It's it's so great to chat movies with you and see you and hang out. Uh, and uh, yeah, just Brad and I, I think, both really appreciate you doing the show. Very oh, much. man, the pleasure all on this side. I really appreciate you guys. I'm so glad you guys, you know, brought this back and you're putting out so many new great episodes, man. Like, I, I'm just so happy for the two of you and with Death at Sunset as well. Again, another just, you know, all of this, this great work that you guys are kind of putting out there into the, you know into the, the internet stratosphere and i'm just like i'm so just like elated that i get to be involved with any of this stuff with you and i miss you guys terribly ah miss you too buddy you are you're one of the kindest people on on this whole earth uh thank you so much dude uh happy holidays merry christmas and we'll see you next time goodbye ladies and gentlemen Thank you for coming to the High on Film Christmas Carol Film Series Spectacular. Your first act tonight needs no introduction. Wallace and Davis featuring the Haynes Sisters with everybody's favorite classic from White Christmas.
High on Film is a Maxwell Davis Productions podcast. Original music by Zach Pfeiffer. For more information, follow at High on Film on Twitter and Instagram or email the show at thehighonfilmshow at gmail.com.